The most recent stage of the COVID-19 pandemic has been defined by the surge of the Omicron variant, a version of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that is highly contagious, yet seemingly not as likely to result in severe infection. The Omicron variant arrived at a time when a large portion of the U.S. population had some form of protection against the virus due to vaccination or prior exposure. In other words, we are no longer a completely susceptible population like we were when the virus emerged two years ago. This has resulted in a scenario where many of us are quote unquote fully vaccinated um, and either experiencing breakthrough infections, mostly mild, thankfully for most people, or we know many people who are getting sick. At the same time, while individual risk of severe disease is low for vaccinated persons, due to the sheer numbers of people being infected by this highly contagious variant, the number of COVID hospitalizations still skyrocketed during the Omicron wave. Furthermore, there still remains a large portion of the population that is unvaccinated due to either personal choice or because they are not eligible, such as immunocompromised persons or children under five. But as of this recording in mid-February 2022, it does appear that the worst of the Omicron surge is behind us. Cases are declining almost everywhere in the country, but yet the rate of infection is still as high as it has ever been. States and counties are relaxing their mask mandates to the consternation of some who think this is premature and to the delight of others who think that the risk is low enough for us to resume some sense of normalcy. The question becomes, what is next? Is Omicron, the, is Omicron the end of the pandemic, or at least the beginning of the end? Are we seeing the light at the end of the tunnel? Or should we expect more variants to emerge that will prolong this? If we are fully vaccinated, but understand that there is some risk for breakthrough infection, how do we proceed with our lives? And how long do we take precautions such as wearing masks or avoiding crowds? In other words, how can we as a society learn to live with COVID? Is COVID now endemic? And if so, what does that mean? In this episode, we will discuss where we are with the Omicron surge and the COVID pandemic in general and discuss transitioning to endemicity. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center. And this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. I'm joined by my co-host, Ghassan Hamra, Assistant Professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. How are you doing, Ghassan? Doing great. How about you, Brian? I'm doing okay. And yeah. all right, we are lucky to have back for one more COVID-19 discussion, our good pal, Justin Lessler. Definitely the last one. No, yeah, right. This is, this is the end, right? <laughs> Come mm-hmm. on. Gotta be the end. Um, a professor of epidemiology at the UNC Gillings School of Public Health, of global public health, excuse me. Thank you for joining us, Justin. A pleasure to be here again. Awesome. And Justin has invited a colleague who will be perfect for this discussion. Justin, could you please introduce your fellow expert on this topic? Uh, yeah, this is, uh, I'm joined by Cecile Vaboud, who's an epidemiologist at the Fogarty International Center at the National Institutes of Health. Uh, and in addition to being expert on COVID is I think one of the world's leading experts on influenza epidemiology. Hi, Cecile. Hi, Justin. Thanks for the invitation. Very glad to be here. Great. Thank you both so much for joining us. Um, I'm really excited to jump into this discussion. And let's start with a very basic question. Although I'm sure you guys will not think it's a simple yes or no. Uh, Is the Omicron wave over? 
Well, it's certainly not over. Uh, <laughs> I knew know, that would be the answer. <laughs> we, you know, if cases are as high as you know they have ever been right. uh, prior to the Omicron wave, and even more importantly, hospitalization numbers are still really, really high. ICU numbers are really, really high, and frankly, mm-hmm. deaths are still trending upward in a lot of places. Oh wow! It's really hard to say it is over. It is declining. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Of course, we've seen this light at the end of the tunnel before, so I don't want to be overconfident, but right. I think over is going too far. Got it. Cecile, you have any uh, anything to follow up on that about? What, what's your take on where we are with this Omicron wave? Well, yeah, I think we're, we're in a much better position than we were, I don't know, four weeks ago, where we were near the peak and also not really knowing whether it could go high, even higher than what we're seeing. But um, yeah, I think uh, as Justin said, um, especially the number of deaths, I think is maybe a little more than, than what we expected and where, where we should be at this point of the pandemic. So that's not trending down? The deaths are still going up in many places? Well, nationally, they're, they're trending down. Okay. But there's yeah, been a bit more of a delay between, uh, between cases and death this time. Right. So it's interesting, you know, we know just in a lot of your work is in kind of projecting, projecting cases, deaths, things like that. So, and I've seen, I've seen a lot of this, um, admittedly, a lot of it on Twitter because of time constraints, but uh, to the extent that that informs me, how did, how does the, how are things squaring with, with what uh, a lot of you and your colleagues have predicted in terms of the, 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 when the wave, the wave would peak and things like that? Because as I recall, you were, you were, or at least your projections had said something along the lines of kind of like a mid to late January peak and then a decline somewhat after that. Is it is it kind of looking like that? And can we feel a little bit positive about the way things are going? Yeah, I mean, I mean first, I just want to make sure it's clear, like these are not my projections. Both Cecile and I uh, help lead the scenario modeling hub, COVID-19 yeah. scenario modeling hub, which brings together uh, a ton of teams. Uh, you know, I think we had six teams this time doing national projections. If you include the people who did just states, is it 10, Cecile? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, wow. so, so we had a, had a lot. And I mean, frankly, I've been amazed. Uh, our projections that we made back in December mm-hmm. have tracked uh, pretty well in, mm-hmm. in, you know, the most well-matching scenarios mm-hmm. with exactly what's happened in terms of the peak time, in terms of even... Uh, the levels of hospitalizations and deaths. Um, so, I, you know, I, it's beyond the scope of this podcast, but I think <laughs> an interesting thing to talk about is why was this wave maybe a little bit more predictable than some of the previous waves? Yeah, that's really interesting. That would be an interesting uh, topic. Um, so following, so if, if you look at your models and if you look at what's happening, just as as I thought you would say, the, the Omicron wave is not over, but we're certainly over the peak we're, we're down, you know, if this was a wave or on the other side, we're crashing. I think the question is, how low do we go, right? You know, because is this the new baseline? And as, as Justin said, we're still have more cases per day than we've ever had before. I think it's like 200,000 cases per day, at least as of two days ago when I checked, um, which is as high as we've ever been. And so are we still going down? You know, are we heading somewhere towards zero? Or is this gonna, are we gonna level out somewhere where we just continue to have a massive amount of cases per day? And that's our new baseline. Uh, so, you know, we're still going down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the modeling that Cecile and I are part of um, 
you know, suggests that around April, at least in terms of hospitalizations, we should be back where we were in the uh, mid-summer 2021, where uh, things are, um, you know, things are, in terms of the number of hospitalizations, where things were looking really good. Gotcha. And I yeah. think, um, you know, in cases, you know, I think cases are a little bit less of a concern than they used to be because things are mild, more mild. Um, and, you know, we're not getting to zero. You know, okay. we've, or at least not permanently to zero. The only disease we've eradicated in humans is smallpox, fingers crossed, polio is coming soon. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, so, so we're not getting to zero, but I think we are likely getting into a place that's very different than it is now. So just to go on that for just a little bit more, and I know I'm babbling a bit, but, um, you know, I, I get a little frustrated that I feel like there's people throwing their hands up and saying, oh, it's never going to get better than it is right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it not going away is not the same as it not getting better than it is right now. And I Early think we're on a trend that at least in the short term, things are um, improving are going to continue to improve. I'd be interested to hear Cecile's thoughts as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, the models predict that because there's been so much infection and there will continue to be for some time, there's going to be a lot of new immunity in the population that's going to, um, you know, drive the incidence down. Uh, but of course, this is not a frozen system. We will probably get new variants. Oh, right? yes. Um, I mean, I'm sure you're going <laughs> to. <laughs> That's going to be our some next point in, in, in your question, but yeah. it also depends on, on what is your time frame, right? If we're thinking maybe the next two months, yeah, I think we're going to keep going down. Um, but, you know, for a longer time scale, we might go up again. I think there's also a lot of questions right now about what exactly is the type of immunity that Omicron gives you. Yes, yes. There's a lot of talk that maybe this is such a mild infection in a lot of people, especially those who are infected, but that maybe it doesn't boost immunity very much. Mm. I'm an optimist. I don't think that's the case, but you know, that's certainly something we should keep our eye on. So the jury's still out on that. I was going to ask you that, that I have a lot of my friends who have been infected asking, so am I protected now? And I, I, I was like, I got to ask the experts. I don't know. You're, you're protected right. for a month or so. I could give you to you that. I don't know how far beyond that. Um, so yeah. that I guess that's still up in the air, huh? Yeah, the long-term dynamics of the immunity, I think, is a huge question and how it like interacts with like various infection histories and will be something will be teasing apart for a long time. I, I think one question in the short term too, and sort of how well we uh, follow these model projections is, is, you know, most of the teams were really not heavily um, uh, putting in a lot of, you know, behavior change. They're sort of assuming that behaviors were staying relatively constant. And, and I think there's still a little bit of a question of exactly how much, you know, at a population level, on an aggregate level, how much, not just the formal mandates and stuff, I think more like the individual decisions people are making mm -hmm. um, is driving this. I, I think it's mostly immunity, uh -huh. but, you know, if it's partially these other things and we really start changing behavior, there could be, you know, local resurgences in some places or sure. it could sort of slow the speed of, of decline. Um, that's that's why I get a little grumpy when people sort of I feel like jump the gun a bit on um, absolutely on on saying okay we should you know stop masking and stuff like oh that. My gosh. I, think that. I think they're like anticipating 
a little too much. And if, any, if nothing else, this pandemic should have made us humble by now. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a bunch of questions that we want to ask you about Omicron and, and, and other variants. But, but since you mentioned it, I think that's a good point. I was going to ask you if you think it's premature to, to stop the mask mandates. And um, it sounds like you think the answer is yes, because I think what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, yeah, we're, we're on the way down. But if you then remove all of the precautions that we're taking to prevent infection, there's a very good chance it goes back up. You know, this is not like the weather where we're like, OK, it stopped raining. I can I can take the umbrella away because you're taking the umbrella away actually affects the rain coming back in this case. Right. Anyone want to. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's masking, but it's also uh... I think um, testing as well, right? Being very careful about testing and doing this uh, in a regular fashion and, and frequently. And if that that changes, uh, that might also affect the dynamic. It's interesting to look at the epidemic in the UK because it, it crashed after Christmas and then they relaxed interventions quite a bit. Uh, there's a lot going on, right? So it's not a proof, it's an ecological you know, experiment. Mm -hmm evidence, but then you see that the epidemic is uh, not, not really going up again, but really flat tailing right at that point. And we're still suddenly in this long tail, um, which is where we could be too uh, at some point here if, if we start relaxing, which we are, I think in DC, we're relaxing everything next week. So <laughs> yep, Chicago too, mass mandates yeah. are going away and I'm a little scared. Yeah, and just to riff on that, just a little more like, I, you know, I think one of the you know, we're talking about the formal mandates, but I some, sometimes think it's as much the message that those changes send and people's other behavior that's as important as like, you know, exactly where people are required and not required to mass. That's a good point. I yes. mean, one of the things throughout the pandemic, I think one of the challenges and one of the things that has often sort of surprised us is sort of latent behavior change. I, I think even, or not latent, but non-mandated behavior change, what mm -hmm. people just do because they, they themselves are making a risk assessment. I, mm -hmm. I remember early on, you know, when there were lockdowns in a ton of states, you saw similar impacts in a lot of places there weren't lockdowns because people radically changed their behavior in those places, even though they weren't required to. Got it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm, you know, like from a public health standpoint, nervous and from a epidemiologist, you know, researcher standpoint, very curious about exactly like how much like latent potential there is there and how that's going to play out as people really um, change how they act over the next month or two. Mm -hmm. Well, I can definitely say one thing that I often think about, and I've discussed this with my wife, because we have uh, a son who has asthma. And so in the viral season, his risk for any kind of asthma exacerbation is increased. I thought to myself, are we potentially just every every kind of like viral season gonna be sending him to indoor spaces with masks regardless of COVID? Mm -hmm. And I think of, and I don't know the veracity of these numbers, but as I recall last winter when COVID was still quite high, even it's still high now, but they were talking about flu cases and how just not, not COVID, but near COVID-19, but other viruses were not circulating in the population they were like they did before. And I don't know if that was related to masks, but it, sure it seemed like it probably was. And that <laughs> yeah. just kind of says to me like, well, maybe this needs to be just not, you know, like kind of not even regardless of a mandate, maybe it needs to be like a good practice in the future. And my wife mm -hmm. and I have always talked about how you know, maybe in for the rest of 
for the rest of our lives, I don't know how long, just like every winter, you know, you go into indoor places that are tight spaces, you just wear a mask just for, for good measure. Hmm. So um, I'll, you know, uh, I just say, you know, a lot of the world, the attitude about masks is yeah. very different. And in particular That's places right. that were, you know, protect or affected by that first uh, SARS, um, SARS-1 epidemic, you know, people wear masks when they're when they're sick, and people wear masks when they're vulnerable. And I think that wouldn't be a bad change. I think we we have been a little bit too uh, flippant about when we're sick and when we go into places mm-hmm. here. And maybe people might think twice. But uh, I'd also like to hear Cecile's thoughts on uh, you know this uh, the suppression of flu and other viruses. Yeah, I think it's very interesting and uh, it's been observed in a lot of places. I think it's not just masking because the, the biggest repression that we see during the lockdown period, which in mm-hmm. every country was without any masks, except maybe in Asia. Mm-hmm. So it's also contacts, right? Mm-hmm. And something like flu, it's also about global travel because that's how viruses are seeded, right? And so if you if you have less of that, then you have less fewer introductions. Uh, and so, yeah, a big question is also how those viruses are going to rebound now that there's been close to two years with very little circulation. Um, there's probably a relatively important immunity gap in the population. And so, yeah, one worries about uh, those pathogens. And so maybe keeping some of the masking on would help with the possible high peaks uh, of those diseases. Um, yeah. Also, interestingly, we've seen that some diseases might manage to persist. So it's not every virus out there that was repressed. I mean, for instance, rhinovirus, which is a cause of common cold, there are many, many serotypes circulating uh, as, as, you know, they kept circulating throughout the pandemic. Uh, so it's also the nature of the virus, maybe how contacts occur. I mean, some viruses are enveloped, others are not, and maybe that, that also affects um, how they behave with respect to masking and contact. Well, it's, it kind of, I was just going to say, it kind of reminds me of the, the more dismissive comments people make about masks, especially with regard to Omicron, where it's like, oh, well, they just don't even work. So look at Omicron. It's, but it's like, well, it's just a more virulent strain. It doesn't mean that masks don't work. It just means they're less effective. But that we could say the same, you say the same about, vac- about vaccines. They are very effective, but they're not perfect. Nothing is perfect. That doesn't mean you dismiss them and don't 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 use those things right and, and i think thinking about like less effective right like you know i think i think people like say that because they're looking at the they're like doing this weird translation between the population numbers and the individual numbers yes like i i suspect the proportional decrease in risk from wearing a mask is similar for omicron than, than the other sure. variants maybe a right. little different but mm-hmm. but not radically different mm-hmm. i think what is different is that protection, if you're, you know, seeing 10 or 15 people who could potentially infect you a day instead of like one or two, right. really plays out differently. Exactly. Uh, it's just a personal comment on that rhinovirus thing. Like, you know, th- throughout the past, uh, you know, a few months, you know, we've, or, or even longer, you know, we've had like respiratory infections in our family. We're like, oh, this has to be COVID. This has to be COVID. We keep testing negative, negative, negative. So clearly some things are getting through, even if it's yeah, well, you got young kids, are they, and going to daycare and stuff, so, right? Yeah. Yeah, yep, that's going to do it, no matter what. <laughs> okay, well, let's get back to this, this question of, you know, what's next? So, you know, first of all, before we even get to 
the next variant that come that can come along. Let's just stick with the Omicron variant. So I've actually, uh, I, you know, I was reading that the Omicron variant is actually a family of strains, uh, right? There's there's not just one. There's three: BA one, BA two, and BA three. Um, and in the U.S., BA one is the dominant strain, right? But then I see a lot of worrying, at least on Twitter, that you know, what about BA two? Like, is that the next one that could come? Um, and could it all of a sudden start spreading like this first Omicron wave, and we have a second Omicron version two, 2.0 wave? Um, I saw a CNN article just yesterday, I think, that said there's some evidence that BA two is actually more more uh, leads to more severe infection than BA one. Uh, which had me really freaked out because I was like, oh gosh, is it super infectious and really more severe? And could the could we have another wave coming that could be even more dangerous for people? So Cecile, what, what is your take on whether there's a BA2 wave coming? Yeah, I think it's a little hard to to, you know, um, to predict whether there's going to be a replacement. So, mm -hmm. you know, disappearance of, of the BA1 Omicron. Mm -hmm. But we have seen, it's interesting to look at other countries which tend to be a bit earlier than we are, in particular South Africa and the UK. And in South Africa, BA2 has replaced BA1 by now, mm -hmm. but there was just a tiny blip in the incidence of cases uh, when that happened, when the takeover happened. Uh, there's also been um, really good studies on severity showing that uh, BA2 is not much more severe. So I think oh. it could perhaps prolong the tail a little bit um, because, you know, if there's replacement, it means that the virus is fitter somewhere, somehow, and so maybe slightly more transmissible. I think there's maybe a little bit of data from the UK suggesting that. Um, I wouldn't expect, you know, a second wave very with very large uh, number of, of hospitalization and, and cases and deaths. That's yeah. very reassuring to hear. Yeah, I mean, I think these BA2, BA3, like they're really like sort of, you know, like sort of the result of, it looks like sort of the ongoing evolution of Omicron, right? Mm -hmm. They're sort of, you know, this natural movement of the virus as it sort of evolves to escape immune systems and, you know, increases fitness a bit and stuff like that. And it's sort of this gradual process. So they're not really like the same sort of, as far as I can tell, the same sort of radical shift in how the virus looks to your immune system that Omicron represented. And, and I think those are really different things in terms of exactly how a wave plays out, whether it's just a little blip or a little slowing of the decline versus, you know, oh crap, here comes the resurgence again. Yeah, we've sorry, we've seen some of those like um, slightly different but but related viruses in the Delta wave. I mean, there was for some, uh, for mm. a, while a lot of worry about AI four in the UK, and mm. it didn't really lead anywhere. So I think you know it's not really new. We've seen that in in past waves. Got it. Yeah, so that's exactly what I was asked about is past waves and what we can learn from them because I feel like a, a lot of a lot of rhetoric is given to looking at the 1918 pandemic mm -hmm. and statements about, oh yeah, well, we saw X amount of peaks at that time. So we can kind of pro project that that's going to be the case now, but is that even feasible at all? Like in terms of past pandemics that we know about and can even have any quantification from what do you feel that we can learn something about the, the, the waves and what happens after over the course of the pandemic, or is it just kind of not really, not really reasonable to expect that viruses kind of act the same way over time in 
uh, as they have in the past. Yeah, I, th I think it's very natural to want to look at the past, right? That's how you learn. But then you have to try to estimate why it could be different this time. So indeed, in 1918, we had two years of, of unusual high peaks of mortality, especially among young adults. And then by the third year, it sort of disappeared. But then it took another 10 years until we saw the regular pattern. We saw high mortality in older people. So we think that about 10 years until we got the new variant, um, the new variant or immune escape variant. So the next Omicron in a way. So I think, you know, um, COVID-19 is very different. It has a higher R0. We have much more immunity right now because we have a vaccine clearly 1918, there was no vaccine. Right. Um, and so I think the patterns could be quite different. Uh, Interesting. I'd expect in the long run that we would see more frequent variants that we, we've seen after 1918. Also, you have to think that the world was not as connected now, right? So mm -hmm. this super viruses <laughs> i mean it was there because the, the 1918 virus diffused globally but probably not in the same way that they do now um, that's, that's a really really interesting point and i and i think that people don't realize that the the, the more the virus can spread in terms of both the are not like you said that the more infectious a virus is and the more opportunity it has to spread to more people globally um the faster it evolves is that right the faster it mutates and so you're more like is that true justin you know no the less the listeners can't see justin give me a skeptical face so so <laughs> if that's not true then then let me know but i, I think that what i heard cecile saying is that there was more likelihood of um, variants emerging for COVID than there was for the 1918 flu. Is that, did I misunderstand that? Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's higher R0, but it's a higher rate of evolution, right? Because right. the spike protein, and it's a very good point that I didn't make. Uh -huh. <laughs> protein is very, uh, tolerates a lot of mutation. Probably. Got it the surface protein of the flu virus. I mean, it's early days, it's, you know, we've only seen two years, but the mm -hmm. rate of we've seen uh, is um, is higher than we see for H3 and 2 flu virus, which is the fastest evolving flu virus. So Got I think it. combination of, of more infection, so you know, the rate is rate over time, right? Mm -hmm. And um, But the combination of more, just more infection and, and, and more tolerability of the protein to evolve. I so see see more variants and we have already in a, in a period of two years as compared with past pandemic flu right so just to riff a little bit on what cecile was saying you know like somewhat the evolution is a numbers game right there there's more people now a lot of them are infected so that's a lot of opportunities for mutations to happen mm -hmm. uh, but I, I also think you know going back to flu i think there's there's a, an interesting analogy to flu uh, in terms of it, the mechanisms are different, but in terms of how we think about the arising of new variants, mm -hmm. you know, in flu, we have this idea of antigenic drift, which is sort of the constant, you know, escape of the flu strains from our immune system that's sort of gradual and happens year to year and is really why we need to have that updated vaccine every year mm -hmm. uh, and update the formulation every, every few years. Mm -hmm. So there's that slow process. And then there's this antigenic process that's called antigenic shift, where the virus uh, changes radically. Usually um, in the flu, you know, usually it's something that happens in an animal, or for all the times we've known it's happened, it's something that happens in an animal and then it jumps to humans and it's, it's radically different. Mm. And that's where we have these flu pandemics. And I think there's a similar analogy for uh, COVID-19. Like we are definitely, 
going to see these the slow evolution and escape and you know it's probably going to cause yearly epidemics and perhaps you know there'll be some sort of regular updates of the vaccine like we have for flu mm -hmm. but we might also occasionally see because we know it goes to animals and back to humans like these radically different um, strains come along that might have very different profiles and how well they transmit and how um, even perhaps severity. Uh, so I think that that's something that I think it's an unknown of exactly how that's gonna play out. Mm -hmm. I think Omicron shows us that something like that is possible because you know, in contrast to some of the previous strains like Omicron, showed up with a lot of mutations and you know maybe that was like a chronic infection an immunocompromised person or circulation in a poorly surveilled part of the world or i think one of the best theories is that you know something happened in an animal population you know we infected animals something happened there huh. and it came back you know I, th those those are all possibilities but omicron in some ways was that sort of almost that shift variant where it was coming in almost like it was something new Fortunately, uh, it wasn't, you know, fortunately, immune, prior immunity was giving a lot of protection against severe disease. So, you know, it wasn't the crisis it could have been. But um, I think that type of thing is going to be a different animal and require a different response compared to sort of the slow evolution of the virus that, that I think is inevitable over time. Okay, that that was really useful information, um, and I, I, I want to follow up. We we're going to get to the long term transition to endemic in a second, okay? But I, I first I want to start with the short term, because I mean that was really nice how you split it up into what happens in the short term versus the long term. But what everyone's interested in is the short term. You know what? So we talked about. Cecile, you gave me uh, reassurance that probably BA two, the next, you know, the other strain of Omicron probably won't start this next big surge, right? Well, what about beyond Omicron? Like, what about the next variant? So it sounds like this thing evolves quickly um, or mutates quickly. Things happen like it could jump into an animal and back, like Justin said. How likely, I mean, should we be expecting another variant to emerge and start a surge like the Omicron variant again? Or is there differences in the way the population is susceptible at this point that we don't think it's as likely that we're going to get another big surge like that? I mean, I think we're going to get another big surge in cases. You yeah. know, define what you mean by big. <laughs> That's a good point, right? So, so maybe we have a big surge in cases, but we don't have the same surge in hospitalizations and, and deaths, right? Which yeah. uh, is that what you think is probably the next wave that comes along yeah i think that's a that's a that's a good hypothesis right that <clears throat> this this sort of built-up immunity which we have now in close to 100 percent of the population right mm -hmm. vaccination or, or natural infection um that will keep protecting us against against severe severe disease upon infection uh but you know this immunity it's going to wane over time just because everything weighs wanes but also we we're going to get new variant that mm -hmm. that um, you know, difference of a centigen that we don't quite recognize, and so we will get infected. I think the the question is, if you it, it's a it's a it's a um, game of numbers, right? To as mm -hmm. I said before, if we we get enough cases, we're also going to get quite a lot of deaths. You know, sure. just in terms of number, even with a low severity. I mean, I was just looking at the Omicron wave. We're close to ninety thousand deaths. Yes, this wave. 
Um, and so, you know, that's two to three times the impact of a, a regular flu season. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, you know, it's not to say that this is this is the the endemic pattern or the next wave, but I think that's still quite high. <laughs> sure, and that's a really important point, and I, I I got at it a little bit in the intro, but you know, just because your individual risk of getting severe disease and being hospitalized or, or dying if you get infected is lower now, if if the surge is so big in terms of cases that so many people are getting infected, even if it's a smaller risk of severe disease, you're still going to get a lot of people with severe disease. And that's what's happening. That's what happened with Omicron in terms of hospitalizations and death. Your individual risk of that happening was lower, but so many people had it. And, and I think that that's an important point when you're talking about policy and when you're when you're talking about you know what we should do as a population, you know you can't just base everything on people's individual risk because you still could have, you know what was the whole reason we did the lockdowns in the beginning? What were we most worried about? We were worried about the healthcare system getting overwhelmed, right? And we still had a lot of hospitalizations just because of the sheer amount of cases. So, um, you know we have to be careful as things get as the virus gets less uh, severe over time, which it sounds like you both are telling us reassuringly. Oh, I don't know, Justin's a little skeptical, it looks like again. <laughs> I love the, the the skeptical Justin face. Anytime I anytime I try to be optimistic, something. That, yeah. Right. But, I, I mean, I think I think I just want to be clear about what we're yeah. saying is we're saying like, I think it's definitely <laughs> the likely trend that this this sort of drifting pattern mm -hmm. is going to be less severe and we're not going to be a, a you know, not, you know, not see super severe strains. And I think even sort of a, a bigger jump like Omicron, I hope we don't see, um, see high severity, but, but in those big jumps, I think you have to be a little bit more careful of saying low severity is a sure thing. Right. And it, and it gets to, you know, it gets to how, you know, I, I keep wanting to pull you to long-term when you're not ready and I apologize. <laughs> But I, but it does get to how we think about dealing with this long term. You know, mm -hmm. how do we, how do we quickly ascertain if this new thing that that we just showed up that's going to start infecting more people? That if it's a like, if it's a big shift in severity and we gotta, you know, pull back, you know, really, really, really respond versus okay, a lot of cases are coming and we're not going to have severe states. I'm very hopeful that we never see another severe wave, but I think we just have to be careful about assuming that that's inevitably the case. Got it. Yeah, I want, before we do grant Justin the pleasure of shifting to long-term, which we will, I do want to talk about endemicity so bad. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm down, I want to know. Um, but before that, I do want to uh, build on something that Cecile mentioned, which is something I just want to get your take on, which is, one thing you pointed out was that in this season, what we've seen in terms of the mortality due to the Omicron variant is something like three or to four times what we expect annually from the flu. And in terms of that, and even the case counts, I wonder if, if there's any um, evidence that perhaps this is um, because we're being so vigilant about diagnosing it the right way in terms of both mortality and in terms of measuring cases, or if we've just actually just done, not done a very good job in the past with the flu, and maybe the flu annually is actually worse than we realize 
because it's circulating a lot more than we even think. And maybe we don't diagnose mortality from the flu historically the way we should, if if that's even a possibility. Because it, you know, like you like you said, I think what is it? Something like 30 to 35,000 deaths a year generally from the flu, which is 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 a lot, but maybe we're missing a lot. And maybe this is actually gonna be an opportunity to teach us to be more vigilant about it. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. I think you could devote an entire podcast on, <laughs> you know, how to measure the burden of flu or endemic viruses. But the number I was giving, 30 to 35,000, is based on this statistical approach of excess mortality, where we don't rely necessarily ah. on confirmed um, deaths for flu. And, and so I think, you know, we think this is our sort of broader envelope of what we think the impact of food could be. And so I think it's a relatively reasonable number. Uh, I think your, your point is well taken about, uh, about how to measure those things in the long run. And they start also co-circulating. I mean, we know it's going to be very difficult to pick what's exactly flu versus COVID. Mm -hmm in the long run if we don't do a lot of those tests because um, the manifestations are quite similar, the symptoms. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and I just want to like go say something, uh, you know, I think there's there, something you said, Gassan, made, made me uh, just brought up that, you know, sometimes you get people who are sort of saying, oh, it's surveillance uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're seeing, um, you know, we're overcounting the uh, number of excess uh, deaths due to COVID-19. But when you look at excess mortality throughout mm -hmm. the pandemic, it's always been higher than the number of confirmed deaths from COVID. Right. Right. So um, I, I think we, you know, I think at least so far, I, I, you know, I, it'll be a while before we know from the last wave, but I think in, in all the previous waves, it's been more, likely more people have died from the virus than we count when we look at those confirmed cases, um, not less, you know, we'll, we'll see with Omicron, you know, but uh, I think going back further, it, you know, like, you know, we have, um, you know, we have 900 some thousand people have died, you know, confirmed died in the US so far from COVID-19. But if you look at the excess mortality, it, it's over a million. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, probably we've missed like that something like 10%. That's a really so, interesting point. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we got to keep that in mind. And that's we, a, we missed a lot in the first wave, especially because mm -hmm. it was so low. So the undercount is about 30%. Really interesting point. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to go off on a tangent on this, but, you know, the field I work in is Alzheimer's. And, you know, one of the things that I do is count how many people die from Alzheimer's. And what's been fascinating is in, in these last two years, the number of deaths from Alzheimer's has skyrocketed, right? Um, now, does that mean that people actually were more likely to die of Alzheimer's? Probably not. There's probably a lot of COVID deaths in there that got called Alzheimer's deaths. Uh, but at the same time, Alzheimer's makes you more uh, susceptible to dying from having Alzheimer's and suffering from it makes you more susceptible to dying from COVID. So there's kind of these interactions between different uh, causes of death that um, that are, you know, like I said, they're, they're, they're working with each other. And like Justin said, if you just forget about the cause of death and you look at the excess mortality compared to what we expect year after year, it's really, really gone up even beyond just the counts of people we've called COVID deaths. So really interesting point. Just maybe just a slight caveat. Yeah. This, I, mean, I think this is an important subject because I work a lot yeah. on 
mortality too, but there's also, I mean, you can see an excess in, in other causes of death, such as mm -hmm. homicides and opioids, and people have written about it, but you can see it very clearly. And it's very hard to think this is directly related to SARS-CoV-2 infections, right? So there's also That's true. indirect impacts of the pandemic. The context of the pandemic. Uh, right, are not coincidental with the trajectory of the COVID-19 pandemic. In particular, those deaths start to rise in the summer of 2020 at a period where it was relatively uh, you know, low incidence for COVID. And we, we think those are quite indirect impacts. Uh, you also have to think about those uh, when you when you look at very broad statistics on excess mortality. That's a really good point. Going back to the Alzheimer's and uh, you know, we know that the lockdowns and nursing homes and social isolation for the elderly, um, you know, is, it could be really devastating for, for older people. And that could have led to many of the deaths that we saw at, for in people who never even got infected or, or exposed to COVID. So, yeah, really yeah. So I, I just want to say that just because of a lot of interactions I have in social media, though, that those, you know, those alternate causes, those downstream causes, like you know, they definitely exist and I don't want to minimize their importance, but they are not enough to explain. Yes. Good point. The excess mortality we're seeing yes. from COVID. You know, right. I, I, I've had a lot of interactions where people who don't want to take the, you know, who, are, who don't want to take the pandemic as seriously yes. sort of said, oh, it's all ancillary effects to control. And yes. they're just, we, you know, those, those types of deaths are a little bit more easy to, to, identify than you know somebody who has like a, a stroke and you don't know why and we're and they're just not enough of them to explain you know what we have seen in excess mortality for that's a good that's a really good point we should make the, the the context of the pandemic probably did lead to a lot of deaths but it didn't kill a million people let's face it right. covid you know the actual virus is the culprit for the vast majority of those deaths that we're talking about um okay but we let's get to it you know we're, we're running out of time here we got to talk about what justin's been uh you know chomping at the bit to talk about let's talk about long term are we transitioning to an endemic state for for the virus and what does that mean you know what are the indicators you know i've had a lot of people ask me what's the difference between a pandemic and an endemic uh you know disease um so maybe we could just define those terms and talk about what are the indicators that would say we're transitioning to endemicity? What does that mean for us long-term? Yeah, so I think that, you know, I, I, so the first I'd say, I think there's been a, like a conflation in the public discourse in that um, people keep using endemic for a proxy for the end of the public <laughs> <Right>. health emergency. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, you know, endemic, you know, sort of to an epidemiologist, right? An endemic mean, means something sort of very specific about, you know, we have we have the disease, but we sort of have it at around expected levels, mm -hmm. you know? And we don't know what those expected levels are. We don't know exactly what the seasonality is gonna look like. We don't know a lot of this. So I think from a, a technical epidemiologic standpoint, I, I think, you know, probably people like Cecile and I will be debating when it became endemic for another decade. Interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, but that's a different question than, you know, is there enough immunity in the population that future waves aren't gonna cause a lot of deaths and hospitalizations and our population is 
pretty darn protected um, from the worst effects of, of the virus. And I think there's a good chance that, you know, with vaccination boosting plus the natural infection from Omicron, that we are entering that phase. Mm-hmm. You know, don't want to say anything with too much confidence, but, you know, that's, that's my intuition is that things are going to look a lot better going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, whether that's endemic or not, that's, you know, whether we're at endemicity or not, I think that's a different question. Very, very useful way to look at this. I think that's a, um, I like that you said that we're going to be debating when endemicity started for, for the next 10 years. And I think people want like a, you know, here's the point where, you know, you know, it was in February that we all of a sudden became endemic, but I don't think it, it happens like a switch like that. Right. I don't know, Cecilia, we're kind of still kind of debating when 1918 started being endemic, right? So maybe <laughs> oh, it's gosh. 100 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and you have to realize that in 1918 was a data poor era, right? We had no, no yes. testing, nothing, right? So mm-hmm. uh, it's very cloudy uh, in mm-hmm. there. Uh, but I think also on the city, um, you know, different people might have different uh, definitions of it. To me, it's, it's stability in, uh, in periodicity and seasonality. Mm-hmm. Or, burden, although we do see that for, you know, other viruses, there are different endemic patterns. For instance, even flu, when the flu is endemic and comes back every winter, there are some variations between years in how many people are infected and how many deaths we get just because there's viral evolution. So I think we should expect that for COVID as well. There's going to be overall stability, but fluctuation around this stable pattern. Um, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think exactly yeah. what it will be. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, I mean, just like along those lines, right? Like, you know, indemnicity also, like, you know, is, you know, I, I kind of said it as if, okay, the public health emergency might be over, um, but the, you know, but it's not, um, you know, but we're not endemic yet. But it's also the case that, you know, it could be endemic, but still be, be, be quite a problem. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think, um, I think it's a paper by Cecile for the flu show has shown that, you know, uh, some, some of the uh, quote unquote endemic years or, or the, you know, non-pandemic flu years have as met, have had as much mortality as some of the pandemic years. And uh, then, you know, and then, you know, if we look back in time, you know, take a disease like smallpox, right? Like it was, it was a huge killer and, and they're endemic diseases in many parts of the world that are still big killers right. that, um, you know, just because they're endemic doesn't mean they're not a problem. Malaria being. Malaria being the leading example, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. But, you know, I, I think, you know, because of the way COVID immunity works, because of, you know, what we've seen with other coronaviruses and stuff, it's my, it's my general intuition that an endemic COVID is going to be pretty mild. Mm-hmm. But, um, or relatively mild, not be a big scourge, but you know, just because it, it's endemic doesn't, you know, say that for sure. So then, I guess what I would wonder is, do you feel like we're a little more equipped in a, both in two different ways to handle this? One being the fact that we have a vaccine, right? Despite the fact that the virus evolves, the vaccine seems to confer some immunity through the evolution, do we feel, or do you all at least feel somewhat confident that, you know, tweaking the vaccine here and there will allow us to get, um, to allow us to continue to use it in an effective way? And then 
and the other side, do you feel like we as a society have learned something here from this pandemic and will approach endemicity a little differently and say, well, you know, I kind of brought this up earlier. I was like, okay, well, it's, it's the viral season. Things are circulating. We need to be a little more vigilant. Probably we should wear masks aside, things like that. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. You don't look optimistic, Justin. <laughs> no one can see that, but I, I, I'm not, I'm not I, I, I optimism so. here. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the vaccine, you know, makes things really different. And, and you know, I feel like, you know, the mRNA technology is like an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, we've been, you know, our flu vaccination, which we've talked about uh, earlier, I think is basically 1950s technology <laughs> and how we produce most of that. Uh, you know, some improvements over time, but, but, you know, we're still like replicating the virus in chicken eggs and, you know, all of the things. So I think the mRNA technology, like, you know, is going to be, just to get out of COVID a little bit, is going to be a game changer, I think, long-term on, on any number of diseases. Right. And it, it certainly, um, I think, puts us in a better position to mitigate the, the, the impact of a endemic COVID. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know that we have the structures there yet to, to do that perfectly, but, or, or we'll never do it perfectly, but, you know, <laughs> decently, but, um, you know, I, I am hopeful there. And, you know, I, I think I am hopeful that, you know, if not everybody wearing a mask during, you know, the season that like, you know, people put on a mask when they're sick, people who, mm -hmm. you know, have high risk family members or high risk themselves put on a mask during the season, you know, or when and you're in a crowd or when you're on the public transportation, yeah, you know, there's just it, times when it would make sense going forward to keep wearing the mask. Yeah, but but less of a like, we need everybody to wear it. Because oh, right, the, right. the house is burning. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I, I saw um, you know, I saw a tweet that was saying, you know, the next stage on how to deal, you know, the problem is we've been approaching this because it's been this horrible thing that hit us all at once, you know, as an all or nothing. It was, like, you know, these mandates, everyone has to put a mask on at all time, you know, et cetera. And then it's like, hey, everyone, the mask mandate's gone. Everyone take the mask. You know, it's like all or nothing. And I think that the next stage is probably with of living with this with COVID as an endemic thing is figuring out you know, there's certain times when it makes sense to use the precautions based on your, your situation in terms of, like you said, if you're going to see a, a relative who's old, elderly or immunocompromised, um, you know, and then, there, you know, it's not an all or nothing. It's not like every single day when you leave the house and you go inside anywhere, you put the mask on. It may be get to a point where it makes sense to wear the mask in a certain situation and, and not in others. Does that make sense as kind of where we're going? Yeah, and also if it's your own decision to wear a mask or not, it's much better than if it's a mandate, right? I mean, right, right. Uh, yeah. But I'm an optimist too, and I think that, yeah, indeed the mRNA technology is really good. I think we don't have yet in place the right structure to think about how and when to take the vaccine, how to do it on a sort of global scale, but yeah. mostly between different companies that have different um, products. And also, you know, we flew where we've always struggled with is the time scale between when you need to have the strain identified to put in the vaccine mm -hmm. and it becomes available. And that's a little bit shorter with mRNA, maybe quite a bit shorter, maybe around three months, four months. 
but you know, it's not clear that this is quite the right time scale <laughs> that we when we see a new variant emerging and then spreading globally. Um, yeah. do, do we anticipate? Do you anticipate with mRNA vaccines that we that this is going to see? This is where like those of us who don't understand the technology as well. Like, do we anticipate we still are going to probably need like an annual booster um, to to deal with whatever the new variant is, or is that kind of the how the old technology works? That that's like sort of agnostic to the technology. You know, okay. mRNA vaccine may make it easier to develop a generalized vaccine if we can figure out how to do it. Okay. The other technologies might, but that, I think that has to do, you know, with finding, you know, conserved parts of the virus that our immune system can fight no matter how it, how it comes along, right? But, but whenever we do that, we put evolutionary pressure on the virus to change and we know the virus can change. So it's like mm -hmm. a little unclear how possible that is. Or how effective that back, you know, it could offer some baseline protection, but maybe not, you know, still some need for a like more targeted vaccine. But I think what the mRNA vaccines really do is they they open up a landscape of how, you know, our ability to target different parts of the virus and, and particularly, you know, potentially uh, develop, you know, new versions of the vaccine faster and, and reduce that timeline. You know, what Cecile was saying that, you know, I think eight to nine months timeline for the flu vaccine and, and compressing that to three or four months, which maybe isn't fast enough, but it's a lot faster than nine months. And it'll make you much more likely to hit the right strain for any given season, right? Yeah, that's yeah. that's true too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think also maybe we have to think of the mRNA vaccine or any new vaccine, not as a you know, silver bullet that's going to protect us from infection forever. I think that the idea that we're going to get really, really strong immunity against infection for a very long time, um, I don't think that works very well for, for SARS-CoV-2. I mean, maybe, you know, the, the, the mRNA technology is very new. We might progress very quickly. Maybe if we throw a lot of strains in the vaccine, we're going to be protected against everything. But I think we're not quite there yet. And so we have to think of this vaccine, whether it's annual or... or you know, every two years or whatever, as something that will protect us, help us keep our protection against severe disease, but not necessarily infection. So we, you know, we will keep seeing those waves of uh, of cases, but not necessarily hosp large hospitalizations or deaths. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it, this gets to something that, like, I think people like have a misconception about vaccines often in their head. E even people who sort of really understand it when they think about it is that, you know, I think people often think of of the vaccines like a drug. Um, you know, that somehow it's the vaccine itself that's doing it. But really the vaccine is just a trainer for trainer our body, immune yeah. system, right? Like mm -hmm. exercise or education, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. it doesn't, you know, so it's our immune system that's doing all the work and it's the nature of our immune system that's really setting those limits, you know, plus the evolution of the virus that's setting those limits mm -hmm. and how well you can actually uh, control things give with the um, with the vaccine. Really and for how long? Yeah. But just to clarify, it sounds like from what you're saying, you do both of you do anticipate that we will likely need whether you call them boosters or annual, biannual. We're going to need more vaccine doses going forward. Is that something like people are not done with their third dose, right? Is that a fair statement? I mean, I think it's fair. Again, it depends what your time frame is. I think you know, like 
if you're thinking 10, 20 years, we're probably going to need more booster. I think the frequency of boosters is not clear. I think that's what's not clear. Got it. Heterogeneous to, you know, there's already talk for immunocompromised people of needing a fourth booster, you know, like mm -hmm. a so second booster. So I think there are different gradients of the population that might need a different um, multiplicity of doses and different frequency. And this, you know, being developed or thought about right now, I mean, we, we won't get a, an answer very quickly. I see. Do, we have, do we have decent evidence in terms of um, efficacy of the vaccines by immunocompromised status or even just, you know, maybe, maybe not something quite so specific, but maybe even like age groups and different subsets of the population? Because, you know, what often gets put in, into an article is a headline that says, Pfizer vaccine is 95% effective in population period. And that's, that's great, but that doesn't tell us anything really about the population that they're, the subpopulations within that general population. Mm -hmm. So I, and I, I'm not up on the literature on this. So I'm curious if we have any guidance that could even inform future public health practice in terms of saying, you know, you're in this group, you should think about a booster rather than you're in this group, you probably are okay. Yeah, I mean, I think we're learning about those heterogeneities and, and they certainly exist. You know, there's differences in, by age. Uh, you know, I mean, there's also differences, slight differences in the uh, risk profile of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there's a reason why the, um, you know, under five vaccine that recently got pulled was a low dose vaccine. You know, it had to do with, with wanting to make sure the risk profile was, um, you know, was better for, for those young children who are also like at very low risk of any severe outcomes. Mm -hmm. so, so I think we'll, we'll be learning about that. And, and, you know, like we have high dose flu vaccines for, for older people. We have, you know, and, you know, we have this low, lower dose um, COVID vaccine. So, you know, I, I think that is right that we'll probably have that whether I subgroup that being so said, I think the periodicity of, of boosting, my personal guess, and, and this is a guess, mm -hmm. and um, is that it's going to be driven more by how quickly the virus evolves uh -huh. when it sort of hits this, you know, endemic equilibrium, mm -hmm. not, you know, less than the characteristics of any individual's immune response. But that's my that's my guess, and mm -hmm. you know, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if Cecile, for instance, disagreed. Yeah, well, uh, I think yeah, that's a good guess. <laughs> you know, we'll see. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see that's, how it that's goes. useful. Kassan, I did want to, it's funny, you asked the question that I, I was just reading an article this morning um, in the Atlantic on the exact topic that you're talking about. So I have some numbers um, and they were specifically was talking about people who had organ transplants, right? And so there's all these subgroups we haven't even touched on of people who are immunocompromised for different reasons that don't get the same protection, even if they can be vaccinated, right? So for this is saying that about half of organ transplant recipients produce no antibodies at all after two vaccine doses. And compared with the general vaccinated public, they're 82 times more likely to get breakthrough infections and 485 times more likely to be severely ill. So we do have some numbers that there are definite subgroups that are uh, even when vaccinated, you know, still in a pretty precarious situation. We have to keep yeah. that in mind. Yeah. I mean, I almost said it this earlier, but like, we got to be also be careful about like just 
plopping everybody who's immunocompromised into the same in bucket. one bucket. That's right. Right. Yeah. There, there's a big differences in why you're immunocompromised and how it plays out. You know, you know, if you're if you have controlled HIV versus having to take heavy immunosuppressive drugs to avoid organ rejection, like those are completely different profiles. Um, yeah, and to reiterate the point that, you know, those mRNA vaccines are really good overall, we see, you know, really strong antibody response across all age groups. Uh, and we flew, you know, for instance, that the antibody response is, is lower in, in people over 65. And we don't quite see that at the same level in, in mRNA vaccine, right? So mm -hmm. really good and, and efficacious and, and, and providing a strong immune response in a lot of people, if not 100% of people. Got it. Well, we're, we're getting kind of close to the end here, but there were a couple um, points that I really wanted to touch on before we ended. Um, Cecile, you mentioned global vaccine policy, you know, so, so I think this is the seventh COVID uh, episode that we've recorded over the last two years, and we've been fairly US centric in most of them. Um, but I think we're at a point, I mean, probably we were at a point earlier where we should have been more globally focused, but, you know, to really, get to a stage where we're, we're um, whatever, I don't want to use the term comfortable, but where this endemicity is, is um, at a stage where this disease is not just such a horrifying thing to deal with. I think we have to tackle this globally, right? And I think you were saying that there's no real global vaccine, vaccine uh, policy, right? Well, we know a lot of countries don't even have access to the vaccine. So could you give us a little bit insight on, on kind of the more global picture of what's happening with vaccines. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's uh, pretty clear that there is disparities, mm -hmm. there are disparities in access to vaccination, uh, you know, to some years into the pandemic. <clears throat> um, so the, the vaccination rate for, for two doses on the African continent is about 11% right now. Crazy. Um, yeah. And that, that, that's quite low. Um, but I, I'd like to offer a, a slightly more posi uh, positive message here, mm -hmm. is that I think a silver lining of this pandemic is that there's been a, a lot of attention to the fact that there is almost no manufacturing cap capability uh, in Africa for, for vaccines. Uh, and so the continent imports about 99% of their vaccines. And, you know, this is why they're at the bottom of the queue in a way. Um, and so there is an effort now to try to build this capacity. Of course, it's going to take years. This is not done overnight, but there is a plan over 20 years so that uh, there, there would be uh, some manufacturing capacity there and so that they could produce maybe at least 60% of, of their vaccine. And it would not be just COVID, right? It would be a range of vaccines. So I think, you know, this is a... This is a positive outcome of the pandemic, right? You should have hooked earlier, right? This is kind of right. obvious, uh, but it's happening now, and obviously uh, it will succeed in some ways. Yeah, and, and I and I think right, like that building a capacity could have a big impact on a number of diseases, and I think that that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. You know, one of the things we we should always keep in mind is that you know COVID is is a really age dependent disease, in, in terms of of how mm -hmm. severe it is. So a lot of these countries, you know, that are really young you know, when, when they go and list out their health priorities, you know, COVID may, may be at a little bit different spot on that list than, uh, than it is for an older country like the U.S. And so I, while, while I absolutely, you know, it is, it is critical, it is 
absolutely the right thing to do to make sure all countries have access to the vaccine. I think we should be a little bit careful about imposing the prioritization of that compared to other, um, other health efforts uh, on countries where, um, where, where the risk profile is really, um, really different. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah, and also the rates of uh, natural infection um, in LMICs and in particular in Africa are very high. Before Omicron, there was just a paper that came out for South Africa, it's 70% in adults. So 70% have had natural immunity already, and then wow. this Omicron wave. So it was probably close to 100% already, even wow. vaccine coverage is low. So if, if you know some of those countries think that other diseases are more important to them, then they should put all of their efforts there. Because even if the vaccine is for you, you still have to deliver it, right? Which is right. not to the country. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, what you need, uh, you need freezers and things like that for, you know, <laughs> so there's, there's more than just manufacturing in terms of delivering. Yeah. And I think if those efforts are, are done in such a way that they improve things for measles vaccination, they improve things right. for polio vaccination, you know, they, you know, yeah. then, the, then they're like, great, you know, yeah. but I, I think we, we need to be a little bit careful about, you know, investing that money and having it too narrowly targeted on, on the COVID-19 response right and it yes. not, um, you know, it, it basically being done for the benefit of people of, you know, in uh, richer countries who don't want new variants. Absolutely. I would be remiss to, to not mention that there is now a malaria vaccine, um, which my wife actually helped to work on uh, over the, you know, in the last decades. So I'm very proud of that. And I mean, I don't think it got the attention that it deserved considering, you know, we're, we're swamped by COVID <laughs> our attention is swamped by COVID, but I mean, uh, a malaria, an effective malaria vaccine would be just, just a tremendous, you know, boon to the, to the world, you know, and to, Af to Africa Absolutely. specifically, but to the entire world. Yeah. So I guess one question to build on this and also to kind of bring us to a uh, somewhat of a close because let's face it, this is, this is we're probably going to do another episode. I mean, if 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 the seven is is you know not not the number to end on, you want really like a nice number, like eight, nice. Yeah. Kind of um, so, in terms of like we talked about the global response, and I'm wondering if there are not just in terms of vaccine distribution, but global efforts in terms of public health mobilization to kind of think about future pandemics and how we can better respond, or even in the US alone, like what are we think, what are we doing or what do you know that we're doing to kind of think when this happens again, what can we do right. to handle it besides, I mean, of course we'll- Flounder around like- Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> we'll develop vaccines, but are we gonna be sitting here you know, twiddling our thumbs and kind of saying, is this serious? Is this serious? Is this serious? Oh, it was actually serious a month ago. Crap. That was the, that was the time. That was yeah. the time then. Yeah. What lessons have we learned and how can we apply them to future pandemics? Right. So, so I think we could probably have a whole nother podcast on lessons learned and hopefully maybe in the summer, like things will be so low, we, we can really devote, but, I, but I will say that, um, you know, like this is not just about other things, but co but it's about COVID as well. I think, you know, we should really like, assuming we're going into a lull, we should really use that time to update our planning 
both in terms of updating our pandemic plans. You know, we dusted off a lot of pandemic plans that were made in the early 2000s and responded to COVID. And I think, you know, those were useful, but we learned a lot in the interim. For one thing, we learned that, you know, thinking just about the acute phase, you know, those first couple months was probably not all you should be thinking about in that plan. Mm -hmm. But also I think we, we've, you know, in previous drops in cases, we, we've, we've sort of had the attitude of like, move on, not, okay, we have a breather, let's plan. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the, these really big immune escape variants that come along, they you know, they'll, if they come along for SARS-CoV-2, not saying they definitely will, but if they do, they look like a lot like a new pandemic themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you can make the argument that like Omicron was its own pandemic. Mm. Uh, and so I think, you know, for both preparing for the future of COVID and preparing for what comes next, if something comes next, because it's, it's, you know, it may be 30 years, but sometime, mm -hmm. sometimes something's going to come. The next mm -hmm. flu pandemic will come or something's mm -hmm. going to come eventually. Right. Um, excuse me. Uh, I think we, uh, I think we should really be putting a focus on having plans in place and using what we've learned to, uh, to be prepared and, and have a game plan both Na locally, nationally, globally, mm. uh, that really leverages all we've learned about COVID and all the new tools we've used in the response here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a lot of money that's invested right now by different funders around the world on, on pandemic preparedness. Um, and it's clearly too late for, the, for this pandemic, although it will be useful for the next one or the next big variant. Um, I mean, part of it is also just surveillance, right, and, and genomic sequencing, and that has really changed, um, including in LMICs uh, in the last two years. So that's a really uh, positive benefit, which I think it will be long lasting. Mm. And it's the first step in planning, where right? you need to know where you are and what's circulating. Mm -hmm. Great point. I, I, something that neither of you mentioned that I'm surprised by, that I, I personally hope we learn a lesson from, is um, public health communication. I mean, I just think that just the disaster in communications about every step in terms of whether we should wear masks, whether we shouldn't wear masks, whether we, you know, I mean, it's just, we need to come up with a better way to communicate these things to the public. Um, and then, of course, there's this huge backlash of the governments forcing us to do things. So how, how do we approach this in a way that we as an entire society can understand we need, we're in this together and that we need to approach this uh, you know, together, uh, you know, sure, we're a very individualistic country, right? And we, we like to make decisions for ourselves and what's good for us and our family. But sometimes to tackle a, a major event like this pandemic, you have to think as a group, as a community. And to me personally, I, I, I hope that's a lesson that we learn that, you know, trying to break off into these little silos of, of ways of thinking may not be the best way to approach a major global pandemic. Yeah, I, I don't know how many full podcast episodes you're trying to squeeze in here, Brian. <laughs> yeah, that that could series. be an entire series. Uh, That's right. You know, yeah. I, I think the, uh, you know, communication has been an issue, you know, there and like also structural structural issues, you know, we have a very fragmented public health system in the United mm -hmm. States. Yes, yes. And that's been a challenge and 
you know, communication. I, you know, my, and maybe this is really what we can do in the planning phase, coming back to that is one of my biggest frustrations is we had really poor goal setting or at least goal communication. Yes. Early on and it's never changed. You know, it's mm. never been clear what the policies that are being put in place are trying to accomplish. I don't think we've had a national conversation about that, mm -hmm. um, at least in the, you know, in the public sphere. And, you know, and it shifted too, just to be clear. But I think, you know, some people, you know, back in the lockdowns, right? Some people thought that was meant to get rid of the disease. And some mm -hmm. people thought it was the buy, the buy time. And, yes. you know, like we never had that conversation. And I think that that has contributed to um, to the frustrations and, and the, you know, sort of fracturing because, you know, if we don't agree on what we're trying to do, yeah. it's hard to have a conversation about what the right way to get there is. Good point. And, um, you know, and, and reflecting a little bit, it's a little hard to decide exactly what you're trying to do, um, you know, to use the common metaphor in wartime, right? Like you, you um, I mean, we need to be dynamic, we need to adjust, but, you know, I think saying exactly what the control of policies, the goal of policies and the goal of the response, given diseases or new variants or whatever with certain profiles, and, and thinking about that when, you know, your feet aren't to the fire is probably something that could really help next time. Mm -hmm. Heaven forbid we we go through this. Right. Cecile, any last statements on planning for the future before we close this? Um, no, I think it was uh, it was very nice, um, and I think the communication angle is is really crucial. I was just trying to think. You know, I think it's clear we did pretty poorly here in the U.S., but I was trying to think of a country that would be exemplary there and we could learn from. And it's mm -hmm. not clear to me there is any. <laughs> wow. And I don't so, know. Yeah, maybe some <laughs> did better than us, but maybe that would be a good debrief to do that to look at. Uh -huh. Well, I, I'm going to push back. I'm push back on <laughs> yeah, that. Okay, okay. What, what about yeah. South Korea? What about South Korea or Japan? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, yeah, they have waves now, but they're you know, Japan's mortality per capita mortality rate is you know less than one in six thousand. You know, South yeah. Korea's per capita mortality is I think less than one in ten thousand. Like. Oh, wow. So I completely agree with you yeah. that their response was great. I'm just thinking about the communication angle and uh, okay, you know, yeah. communicate it to the public. But, you know, the question yeah, that's right. communicate. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree that there are different levels of response and are probably in the middle, maybe low middle here. In Got it. Yes. Uh, but in terms of, you know, just trying to explain to the public what you want to achieve and, and how you're doing it. Yeah, That's a great point. Yeah, well, yeah. we could have an entire... <laughs> Right. podcast on on communication versus mandating and free country versus you know like a government yeah. crackdown etc um so, yeah can i just say one last comment, yes, I, I, one I, last know, comment. Right, I know we're bleeding into the next podcast but, that's but, okay right but you know on this idea of planning and on this idea of communication i think there, there there's one word we haven't said which is trust yes you know, very good way we, to end this. You know, for it to be effective, you know, for the response to be effective, for the communication to be effective, for all of that to happen, there needs to be trust in the public health system mm -hmm. and the, the people making mandates. And that's, you don't build that like in the midst of the crisis. That mm -hmm. has to be built 
over, over the interim period, at dealing with all of the persistent public health threats we have. So, you know, may, maybe that's as important to any as any specific plan going forward is how do we, uh, how do we sort of go yeah, from this fractious moment to a place where people have trust in the public health system. So we can act together the next time a pandemic or, or big or similar threat comes because, yes. you know, it's only by collective action that we can really stop something like that in its tracks. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. That, I think that's a perfect place to end this conversation until the eighth podcast. Um, so thank you, Justin. Thank you, Cecile. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate yeah. it. Appreciate um, it yeah. So let me uh, make some closing remarks here. If you're an epidemiologist, we recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. As we've said before, membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is scheduled to be held in June 2022 here in Chicago. And membership also gets you access to the SER library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. And you can find out more at epiresearch.org. And also a quick statement that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and any of our guests are ours and their, and their views alone. and do not represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research necessarily. We really appreciate you listening and we'll be back with another episode soon.